So what would you, what could you possibly rather be doing this morning than singing hallelujah with God's people? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And by the way, the Yah at the end is Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, the God whom we are being reintroduced to as we go through Exodus, as he reveals his name, Yahweh, as he shows so much about his character, so much about his power. I pray that each of us is growing in our love for this God, growing in our trust in him as the sovereign Lord, and growing in our desire to serve him rather than the gods of Egypt, the gods of this world, to serve this God as king, who is truly God, who truly is. This morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles as we continue our walk through Exodus, second book of the Bible. So much of the theological superstructure that we have from the Bible comes to us from Exodus. Uh, We talked about that as well from Genesis. The the emphases are a little bit different in Exodus. The the focus is a little different, but we're, we're growing as we go through the Bible, beginning in Genesis and then in Exodus. We're growing to have a very big view of God. You know, probably that is, uh, that is one of the great problems when we find ourselves in sin, we find ourselves just sort of floundering along in the Christian life, is that we really have a small view of God. And I pray that Exodus gives us a very humongous view of this great God. Today we come back to the burning bush, this famous scene from the Bible, back to Moses meeting with Yahweh. The I am God calls this man, this Hebrew, Moses, to go to Egypt to deliver his people from slavery, to deliver the Israelites out of the oppression and affliction and bondage that they have endured now for over four centuries. For 430 years they have been in Egypt, and since the time of Joseph's death and a little after that, they have been under a state of slavery. Last week, we saw God lay out his agenda for Moses. So God comes to him in the burning bush. He reveals himself to Moses, tells him who he is. And last week, we came to the passage where God gives the agenda. He gives his plan. This is what's going to happen, Moses. When you get to Egypt, this is what is going to go down. And so let me just briefly recap that for us. First, a received message. God tells Moses that He's going to go to the elders of the people, the elders of the Israelites. We said last week how amazing it is that there are still elders in place, that there's still an infrastructure among God's people there. It shows God's preservation that even in this state of slavery, God has preserved the 12 tribes. And in that, he has preserved the elders over those tribes and then the families within those tribes. But Moses is to go. And he is to give the message that God has given him, that that God has heard their suffering, he's seen their affliction, and he's going to bring them out. He's going to bring them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and bring them into the promised land. And God tells Moses that the elders will listen to him. 
So that's kind of step one. He, he knows what he's getting into as he goes into Egypt. He's going to talk with his people, and they are going to accept him. They're going to receive him and listen to this message that he has brought, that he has brought from the Lord. Then the second scene when he gets to Egypt will be a rejected command. Not only does he have to go to the Israelites and say this is what God has said, but he has to go to Pharaoh himself, the most powerful man in the world at that time, who was thought by many to be a God, who thought himself to be a God. Moses is to walk right up to Pharaoh and to deliver a command from Yahweh. To say to Pharaoh that the Lord's people are to be released. And we talked last week about the specific command, the three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord and how that was a test for Pharaoh. We talked about how Pharaoh would refuse. The Israelites would listen and receive Moses. The Pharaoh would refuse and reject Moses' message. He would have no interest whatsoever in letting these Israelite slaves leave Egypt. And then finally, a third scene in this telling of the future is a remarkable exit. God tells Moses that when he goes into Egypt and, and he will tell Pharaoh to let the people go, Pharaoh will say no, but God will move Pharaoh with a mighty hand. God will move Pharaoh to release the people. And it will be a remarkable exit. It will be accompanied by wonders that the people will not just go out, but they will go out after miracles are performed by Moses in the name of the Lord. God will pour out his judgment on Egypt. He will show these many wonders, creating a state of awe. And then God also tells Moses that something very strange is going to happen, that in the midst of all this pouring out of judgment on the Egyptians, and of course we know that the final plague will be the death of the firstborn in every single Egyptian home. That even after all of that, God tells Moses that he is going to put favor in the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will give their gold and their silver and their costly garments to the Israelites so that they will leave not as a slave people, but as a wealthy, rich, plundering people. They're not, the image that you have in your mind of the Israelites sort of going out, hobbling with torn clothing and so forth, just kind of put a big fat red X on that. They don't leave Egypt that way. They leave Egypt decked out in Egyptian riches. This is the power of the Lord. In some ways, you see God's power, I think, even, even in a greater way by this favor that he does in the hearts of the Egyptians even more than in the signs and wonders that he shows through the plagues. This is what will happen. So that's what we looked at last week. God explains to Moses that this is how it's going to go down. The title for the sermon today is Objections Answered. You'll see that there on the screen, Objections Answered. So far in this burning bush scene, Moses' response to God has come in the form of what we could call soft objections. God has called Moses to do this thing. The deliverer has called this human deliverer to go and be an instrument of freedom and release for his people. 
Moses' response is uh, questions that really are objections. These are questions that sort of poke holes in the whole idea of him going to Egypt. As though he is saying to God, have you thought about this? Or are you sure about this? Moses is subtly and softly, but still nonetheless doing it. He is challenging the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then a little later, verse 13, chapter 3, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Well, what shall I say to them? Yes, these are, on the one hand, honest questions. And we see them as honest questions from the heart of Moses. Moses is really thinking, okay, if I've got to do this, I need to know what I'm going to say to the people about the one who sent me. But they're not just honest questions. They are also objections to God's call. God has called Moses, and Moses says, I object. And he has already given two of those. Well, today, as we move into chapter 4, we come to the hard objections. Uh, The soft objections are in the past. They're in the history. Moses is, is escalating at this point. And we go from soft objections to hard objections. Moses' objections to the Lord become more straightforward, more direct. You could say more forceful and more transparent. This is really what's been in Moses' heart all along as he's been asking these questions. But now Moses gives it to the Lord straight. And there are three of them. Three objections from Moses to the Lord. And these are our points this morning. So if you want to write these down, these are, in short, the three objections. So first, they won't listen. Verses 1 to 9. Second, I can't speak. Verses 10 to 12, and then finally, just send another. Verses 13 to 17. This is really the last one there, just send another, is what's been on Moses' mind all along. But finally, by the end of it, Moses just lays it out right there for the Lord. And what we'll see today is that each of these objections from Moses is met with an answer. In every case, God responds with an answer. Moses' objections answered. God patiently bears with Moses. That's what we see in this passage. He graciously and yet firmly sends Moses on his way. We, We learn much about the Lord from a passage like this, as we see the interaction between God and Moses. And we, we talked about that back when uh, God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he has this intimate conversation with Abraham, where Abraham is uh, letting, reminding God of his justice. And Abraham is asking God to exercise that justice in sparing those righteous in the city. We see God dialoguing with Abraham, God speaking with Abraham as a friend, letting him in. That same sort of intimate relationship, I think, is demonstrated here as God relates to Moses. And we see, as I said, so much about God's character, his patience, his grace, and his encouragement. We also see this God's will prevails. 
Moses doesn't win. Moses' objections at the end of the day fall flat. It doesn't win. God's will for Moses will prevail. Moses will go to Egypt. And we just need to be reminded again, the God we see working with Moses, the God we see dealing with Moses, speaking to Moses, interacting with Moses, is the God we're worshiping this morning. It's the God we have prayed to this morning. It's the God that you spoke to this morning when you woke up. It's the God whom you know as Abba, Father. This is who he is. And he doesn't change. So see his glorious character. This is a God worthy of our love, worthy of our reverence. This is a God worthy of our service every waking minute. You can spend the decades of your life serving yourself, worshiping your own pleasures, your own convenience, your own comforts, your own desires, your own praise. You can spend your life doing that, or you can spend your life serving this God, this glorious, loving, encouraging, gracious, holy God. If you would, please stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. going to try to take all this on this morning because these objections really hang together and it's nice to see them lined up one after the other and to see God's response to each of them. So Exodus chapter 4 verses 1 to 17. This is the word of God. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. That's a pretty funny scene. I would have have run from it too. Maybe, maybe, Maybe you would not have. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And this word leprous doesn't refer to what we know, what we think of as leprosy, Hansen's disease. This is, uh, this is different. This is a word that generally has to do with just skin diseases, skin conditions in general. Or it could specifically be a flaky skin disorder. Verse 7. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, "O oh my Lord, 
I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I? Yahweh. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I love the way verse 18 begins, Moses went. That's the end of the conversation. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord. Ask for his grace upon us as we are instructed from his word. Our heavenly father, Lord, you are glorious. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God who formed Adam from the dust of the earth and formed Eve, his wife, from his side. You are the God who spoke all things into existence by the power of your eternal word. Father, you are the God who by your spirit puts all things into order. Lord, we praise you, Father, Son, And Holy Spirit. We praise you as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to take on flesh, to take on our human nature, body and soul, joined to his divine nature, to become sin for us, to die in our place, to take the penalty that we deserve. Father, we thank you that all that we are reading in Exodus is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is greater than Moses. We thank you that he is greater than the tabernacle which Moses will set up. We thank you that he is your power, greater than all the plagues poured out on Egypt and the parting of the sea and the manna from heaven and the water from a rock and the victories of the armies of God, greater than all of those things, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we gather here this morning in his name. We pray that he would grow us by his spirit. Father, we thank you that his blood covers us, and that when your wrath comes upon this world, as it will, we will be free. We will be saved covered in the blood of your Son. Father, we thank you that his sacrifice is perfect and sufficient, 
and that you, sh- you prove this to us by raising him from the dead. That this morning we can put our confidence in the cross work of Jesus, knowing that you raised him from the dead. His work is complete, and in him we are complete. Father, we pray that our hope would be in Christ and his great power. We ask that we would see more of your glory, more of your character, more of your attributes this morning as we come to this passage in Exodus. We pray that we would submit to you, trust you, love you, and serve you. We pray that you would have our whole heart, Lord, that you would reign supreme over each of us, over every family represented in this church. Be merciful to us now, we ask God, by your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So the first objection we're going to look at comes to us, verses 1 to 9, and it is, they won't listen. God has given Moses a call to obey, a name to bear. He is bearing the name of Yahweh. He comes in the name of Yahweh and an agenda to follow. So what is his response? Verse 1, then Moses answered, but, you know, it's like our children. We say something and we hear that word, but. They have a better idea of how it ought to go down. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, there's some debate here over how to translate this sentence. So the ESV translates it as a statement. This is Moses directly saying to God, uh, this is the way it's going to turn out. God, Lord, But behold, they will not. That's the way it's rendered in the ESV as a statement. The NIV and the NASB render it as a question. What if they do not or will not? And there's a divergence as commentators wrestle with how to render the Hebrew at this particular point. But whether it is a statement or a question, it's not all that important. Because there's no denying that it is a direct challenge to what God has just said. So question, statement, really doesn't matter because it is, in the context, a direct challenge to what God, the Lord, has said. Verse 18, we read, and they will listen to your voice. So God has just told Moses, they will listen to your voice. And Moses' response is, uh, they will not listen to my voice. Or what if? They will not listen to my voice. It is as though Moses is saying, are you sure, God? Are you sure? Because I have some serious doubts that the Israelites will receive me. So are you sure that they're going to listen to me? Now, it's, it's noteworthy for us that this response probably results from Moses dwelling on the past. So if we go back, we need to rewind back to chapter 2, verse 14. And there you remember when Moses tried to step in and do something on behalf of his people. Remember, there's one man, one Egyptian, beating a Hebrew. Moses steps in. He kills the Hebrew taskmaster. Well, then later he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he goes in to try to break up the fight. And and, and the one who is in the wrong says this to Moses. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? 
Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? So that's how Moses was received the first time he tried to do something on behalf of his people. Acts chapter 7 verse 25 gives us a little insight into what was going on at that time. When Stephen is giving his speech before he is stoned, he talks about Moses and he says he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. In other words, in chapter 2, we have a very optimistic Moses. This is a Moses who goes out. He's very self-assertive. He's very confident. And he assumes that all the Israelites are going to recognize that God has raised him up to do this thing for them. Well, it's been 40 years. And Moses doesn't even have his own sheep. He's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. He's no longer decked out in his royal garments of Egypt. He's no longer there among the Hebrew people. He's 40 years removed from all of that. And what we have here is pessimism at its height. No longer optimistic about his role, but quite the opposite. Very pessimistic about anything he could do. He had already been rejected once. Why would he be received now? Why would they receive him when he goes into Egypt? Why would his people listen? So what does God do? Well, we see the Lord meeting this objection. He comes down to Moses' level. It's almost the image of a father or a mother getting down, you know, squatting down and looking their little child in the eye and talking through with them in the midst of their frustration. This is the imagery we have here of the Lord. He meets this objection. He comes down to Moses' level. He meets Moses where he is. The divine response is gracious and encouraging. Look at verses 2 to 9. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now it's interesting here, we do see Moses' obedience. So he put out his hand and caught it. Probably one of those things Moses did not want to do at all. But he said, okay, I'll do it. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh." If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So how do we sum up God's response? The answer is three signs. That's how, Moses respond, that's how God responds to Moses' first objection. Three signs. God will give Moses three signs to present to the Israelites. And specifically, 
These will be signs for the elders of the people. Moses will get there. He will do these signs in front of the elders. And Moses gets, even here, a little demonstration. So God doesn't just say to Moses, hey, when you get there, you're going to throw your stick down on the ground and it's going to happen. When you get there, you're going to put your hand in your cloak and then you're going to pull it out and it's going to happen. God shows him exactly what he's later going to do, assuring him that he has the power to do it. He gets a little demo. So let's go through these signs quickly. Sign number one, staff to snake, and then snake back to staff. Sign number two, healthy hand to diseased hand, and then back again. And if these two don't work, God says, here's sign number three. Take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and it will turn into blood. Now, this is important. It's important that we notice this. Just as it will be later with Elijah and the apostles, and even Jesus himself, these signs have a purpose. Let me say this. This is really important. Signs are not just fireworks shows. They're not just like a circus. They're not just something that that God just does in general to bring glory to himself. God can bring glory to himself in all kinds of ways. Here we get a little bit of a a theology of what signs are. As we go through the Bible with any topic, we need to begin to build a doctrine of that topic. And here we get the first instance of this idea of there being signs. So what is the purpose of these signs? Well, it's the same in the case of Elijah and the apostles, and even Jesus himself. Remember the turning water into wine, the first of the signs. The purpose here is to authenticate Moses and his message. These signs are not general displays of God's power and glory. They are meant to do a specific thing. When you think signs, think authenticators. They will authenticate Moses and his message. We know that clearly from verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In other words, these signs will authenticate Moses and Moses' message that he is delivering it from the Lord. And this is precisely what we find in the New Testament. When you even see the apostles doing these signs and wonders and various things, and Paul refers to that in Romans 15 as being a confirmation from the Lord. And although these signs before the elders are not given much attention, we read later that Moses did make use of them before the elders. So we read that in chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And listen to how quickly these signs are brushed over. And did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. So we see there, it's, the emphasis does not fall on uh, the people going, hey, okay, show us the first one. Okay, eh, I don't know. Show us the second. Is there another one? The second one. And then the third one. We don't get that. It's very brief here. They did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. I think it implies that the people would have believed without the signs. But God gave the signs to Moses as a grace. Before we move on from these signs, there's one more thing 
that we need to see. These signs are a clear demonstration of God's power and specifically his power over Egypt. Now, you can imagine the Israelites would have felt the weight of the power of Egypt. I don't think very many of the Israelites are in a position to worship the Pharaoh or think of him as a god. But you can imagine any subjugated people feels the weight of the power and the grandeur of those who are oppressing them. So God wants the Israelites to know clearly that he is more powerful than all the powers of Egypt. He's more powerful than their taskmasters. He's more powerful than their Pharaoh. He's more powerful than the pantheon of gods that the Egyptians worship. That's what these signs are about. The snake probably relates to the cobra that appears on Pharaoh's crown. It's a symbol of Egyptian power. It's a a symbol of Pharaonic power. Totally in the hand of and under the hand of Yahweh. This snake that is, this staff is cast down, turned into a snake, and God has the power to turn the snake back into the staff, showing God's power over Egypt. The diseased hand communicates God's power to destroy and to restore, his power to judge and to save. The God who is going to pour out his judgment on Egypt, who's going to bring the plagues, is the same God who will reverse those plagues and who will bring his people out of slavery. And probably most striking is the turning of the Nile water into blood. The Egyptians worshipped, as I said, many gods, but one of the gods they worshipped was the god of the Nile. They saw the Nile River as divine. It was the most significant source of life for Egypt. There would have been no way for the people of Egypt to live in that area without the Nile River. And so the god of the Nile, Hopi, was worshipped, and many other gods were associated with the Nile. So the Nile was, was kind of like a, like a hotbed of, of idolatry. Uh, all these different gods of Egypt folded into the Nile River with Hopi, the god of the Nile. God's power is seen over these so-called gods. When the water of the Nile, which is meant to give life to the Egyptians, is turned into this putrid blood. I think it's also interesting when we think about the children of the Israelites thrown into the Nile River. And here we see the blood. It's as though the blood is crying out, as one commentator put it. Uh, Just as as uh, Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. Here we see the blood of those Hebrew babies crying out from the river. This is the God who is over Egypt. This is the God who truly exists The Egyptian gods are nothing. God is declaring his power and his worth over all idols. So let me just say this to us. Are you seeing that here today? Put aside Hoppy. Hoppy has nothing to do with you, right? Right? So so distant. And and the gods, we could list. We could get a long list. All the gods of Egypt. We'll talk about them when we see the plagues. All the gods of Egypt really have nothing to do with us today, seems so distant. But you know what does have something to do with us today? Gods, your gods, my gods, false gods. Gods we bow down to every day. Gods we worship. Gods we know 
We may not know Hoppy, but we have ours. And we worship them every day. So see the power and the worth of Yahweh over all your gods. Over all the things that you bow down before to worship every day. So that's the first objection. They won't listen. Moses says they won't listen. God responds. Secondly, we see, he says, I cannot speak. I can't speak. I can't do it, God. Look at verses 10 to 12. How many people, how many of us in this room have said that to the Lord? I just can't. I'm not able. Verses 10 to 12, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth. And teach you what you shall speak. Well, here we go again. Instead of saying, wow, God, these are awesome signs and displays of your power. Let's go and do this. That's not what he says. Instead of saying that, instead of enthusiasm and awe, Moses is turned in on himself. He brings forward another objection. He puts the spotlight right on top of Moses. Now, we've already seen this tendency in Moses back in chapter 3, verse 11. He said to God, when God first called him, he said, but, it said, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I that I should do this, God? Here the focus is on his inability to speak well. He says, I am not eloquent. Literally, I am not a man of words. And to this he adds, I never have been. In other words, he said, I wasn't when I was a kid. I wasn't when I got a little older. I wasn't when I got here to Midian. I wasn't before I saw you today. And I, and I haven't been in this conversation. I've never been a man of words. I've never been eloquent. I can't do it. And then he adds this. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And literally, it can be translated, I am heavy of mouth and of tongue. It's quite an image. You know, when you think of something sort of hanging from your mouth, it's it's an image of a weight hanging from your mouth. You just, you can't get your words out. And if you could get your words out, they're going to be very slow and and you're not going to be bouncing in your speech moving fluidly from word to word. It's not the case in Moses' mind. He has a massive weight on his mouth and on his tongue. Now, there's been much debate over what Moses is referring to, but I find it convincing that Moses probably does have some form of speech impediment. As I said, you know, commentators debate this and argue over this, and you may come to a different conclusion. But in the context, I find it convincing that he does have something going on. There's some issue, some impediment to his speech. Maybe it's minor or a bit more significant. 
We don't know. We're not told. But one way or another, he sees many inadequacies in his ability to communicate well. He's the last person, as he sees it, to have this job. Really? Me? Have this job? All the people. You could call for this job, and you're calling me with this thing on my mouth, with this heavy weight hanging from my tongue? You want me? To do this, inadequate, incapable, unable. Even though Stephen describes him in Acts chapter 7 verse 22 as mighty in his words and deeds, there is nothing mighty in Moses' mind about his mouth. So what is God's response to this? Second objection, second straightforward in your face objection, what is God's response? Response. Well, we've seen this before. God moves the spotlight where? Off of Moses and puts it on himself. That's what the Lord does immediately. He, he doesn't get there over time. He immediately takes the spotlight off of Moses and puts it right on himself. And let me just say this to all of us. This is what God is always doing in our lives. This is what God is about. This is what God is in the business of doing. People of God, taking the spotlight off of you and putting it on himself. Let me just say it this way. This is a big part of what our Bible reading and church attendance is all about. Maybe you're here this morning, you're wondering, you know, why you know, you, you've been trying to start reading your Bible and, you, you know, you, you, of course you know that we all need to read our Bibles. There are many reasons we need to read our Bibles. Would you ask, you know what, maybe deep down inside, you're just asking why, you know, what's the point? Why do I really need to read this? Why do I need to read it daily? Why do I need to be in the Word? Why do I need to try as best as I can to be present with God's people, not to forsake the assembling of myself together with God's people? Yeah, that's in the Bible. Why should I make this such a priority in my life, my Bible reading and my time with God's People, And this is at least one reason, is because when you open up your Bible to read it, and when you gather with God's people to praise him, the spotlight moves from yourself to God. That's what happens in your mind. That's what happens in your heart. That's what happens in your worldview. When you open up God's word. Yeah, you, maybe you've had that experience before. I think every Christian has, where you just weighed down because the spotlight's just real bright right here on, on, your, on your head. And you're weighed down and you open your Bible and all of a sudden as you're reading God's word, you're reading about him, you're reading his gospel, you just, you just feel, literally, you, you feel the weight come off of your soul. It's amazing. That's because your eyes move from yourself to the living God. Well, that's what God does for Moses here. Moves from Moses to God. Back in chapter three, verse 11, when Moses said, who am I? God responded, but I will be with you. And here, when Moses says, I can't speak well, God responds in verses 11 to 12. Who has made man's mouth? I love this. I love these, these little questions here. It's, it reminds me of, of Job who has made man's mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, go, Moses, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Yahweh is declaring himself to be the creator. He spoke everything into existence. He formed man from the dust of the earth. He is the sovereign creator, sustainer, and ordainer of everything that exists. That's who God is. He is the I am, the self-existent God. And everything has its existence from him. And by the way, that includes Moses' puny little mouth. It includes the stars, our sun, the planets, the large animals, behemoth, leviathan, as God tells Job, in Moses' mouth. I made your mouth, Moses. I created you. I formed you, as he told Jeremiah, I formed you in your mother's womb. Who's the creator of your lips? Who's the creator of your tongue that hangs so heavy? God will be with his mouth. This is similar to what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. As he sends them out, Matthew 10, 19 to 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Wouldn't it be amazing to pull all the martyrs, the history of Christianity up, and to walk through and ask them to bear witness to the reality, to the truth of God giving them the words to say in the moment of their death. You don't have to worry, Jesus says. I'll take care of that. I'll be with your mouth. I will give you the words to say. And that is what the Lord God is telling Moses here. Interestingly, to add to that, Yahweh says to Moses that he is the one who makes men mute, deaf, seeing, or blind. Listen to this. Not only will God be with Moses, that's not the only thing that God is saying to him. Not only will will he be with his mouth, to help him overcome his weaknesses and deficiencies, God is also saying that he himself put those deficiencies in place. Now that's amazing. He's not just telling Moses, I'm going to work it out. I'm going to take care of you. When you get in there and you start to speak, I'm going to loosen, I'm going to hold that weight up for you, Moses, so you can speak a little more clearly. That's not it. God is also telling him, I've made you the way you are. You are the way you are because of my sovereign plan. I have embedded those weaknesses into your life. I think that should strike home for all of us. God put those there. He is sovereign over Moses' deficiencies, and he is sovereign over yours as well. Moses' weakness is for God's glory. As with the man born blind in John chapter 9, verse 3, uh, Jesus says this, 
Well, let me, let me give you a little background. Jesus' disciples uh, ask him, there's this man, he's been born blind, and the disciples are, are looking at him and thinking, man, this is terrible. Uh, they're thinking in their minds, this is an awful state of existence. And they ask Jesus, much like Job's friends with uh, their broken theology, they ask Jesus, they say, uh, so who sinned, Th- this man's mom and dad or him? Who sinned in order that this would happen to this guy? This is pretty pitiful. And this is what Jesus the Christ says to his disciples. Chapter 9 of John, verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why was this man born blind? Because that's the way God ordained it. Why? For his glory. For his Glory. We see the same principle with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. There's some weakness in Paul's life, some thorn in the flesh, whatever it is. Countless books and articles have been written on this. Well, whatever it is, that's not really the significant part. If that was, he would have said what it was. It's a weakness. And whatever it is, it is placed there by the sovereign God in order to make his power known in the midst of Paul's weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Can you imagine? Assuming, let's assume for a moment that Moses' impediment, whatever it was, was significant enough to kind of constantly be on his mind. And can you imagine Moses gets up in front of Pharaoh? He starts to speak. As Aaron is the one who does most of the speaking early on. We'll talk about that in a moment. But as it progresses, it's more Moses. And there's Moses speaking. And he, he, he's literally experiencing the power of God overcoming his weakness in that moment. Two things happen. His heart readily gives glory to God. And number two, Moses can't beat his own chest. Moses can't pat himself on the back. You are so eloquent. You are so persuasive, powerful in speech. You are, Moses. You know, that little voice inside of all of us that just pats us on the back. There's none of that because God was showing his glory by Moses knowing how weak he was. How weak he was in truth. People of God, listen to this. God is sovereign over your natural deficiencies and inabilities. He's sovereign over it. He doesn't call you because you can. He calls you because he can. He puts his ability, his power, his magnificence on display in your inability. And maybe you've just bought into the lie of thinking, if only I weren't weak here. I could bring God more glory. If only I weren't weak here, I could do this or that more or better. That's not the way it works in God's economy. It is in the midst of and through those weaknesses and deficiencies that you bring God the most glory by trusting in him and seeing his power on display for the sake of his name. See, the problem is we really like our own name. But God's not interested in your name or my name. He's interested in his name. That's what he does. That's how he works. 
and we are most satisfied, we are most delighted, we are most at rest and peace, and we will forever be in a state of joy when God's name and not our name is exalted. It is for our good that God seeks his own glory. So that's the second objection. I can't speak. Finally, as we wrap up this morning, the third objection, just send another. Look with me at verses 13 to 17. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. By the way, I know that he can speak well here. Let me just comment on that briefly. I, I, I think that implies that there is a difference here, naturally speaking, between Moses and Aaron. That, that Moses, it, it, God doesn't correct Moses and say, oh, quit making stuff up. No, Moses does seem to have a deficiency here that Aaron doesn't have. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. <clears throat> you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Here, finally, we get transparency. We get honesty. We discover what's lurking deep down in Moses' heart. And here it is, a simple unwillingness to do what God has called him to do. Have you ever been there? Are you there today? A simple unwillingness to do what God has called you to do. I'm sure we all have. We've all been there in that moment. From what we've seen so far, we know that Moses has faith. He trusts in the Lord. He has reverence towards the Lord in his heart. We know that he has compassion and courage. We've learned a lot about Moses already. And especially in light of Hebrews 11, we know that, that faith is in Moses' heart. He trusts in the Lord. We've seen his character, a character that God put there. But regardless, here we see that Moses simply doesn't want to do this. He's overcome by inadequacy. He's not envisioning success. He's probably wanting things to go back to the way they were several minutes ago before he walked up on this bush. He's wanting to go back to his sheep, wanting to go back to his ordinary life, not wanting to get involved. By the way, I think, you know, we get later, we talk about Moses when it uh, in the Pentateuch, we find a reference to Moses' humility. Moses is never pressing in on this. He, you know, you, you see, e eagerness can be uh, a desire for God's glory, and it can be a, a selfish ambition, right? One thing that's clear as we're going through the story is that there is no selfish ambition in Moses. There's a lot of uh, problems here, as we can see, but selfish ambition is not one of the things that's going on here in Moses' heart. He really just wants to stay with the sheep in the middle of nowhere. That is the life he would carve out for himself. God has borne with Moses patiently. He has carefully answered each of his objections. But now, 
When Moses' unwillingness and persistence in challenging God's plan is made abundantly clear, the Lord expresses anger towards Moses. Do you see that in the text? He expresses anger towards him. We don't know how this anger was made evident to Moses. Was it in the Lord's tone? Did, did Moses hear God's anger in the elevation of his tone? Is it in the intensity of the flame? Does this little flame all of a sudden become a huge flame? And Moses has to jump back? We're not told. But we are told that God was indeed angry. And here we learn two important things about God with respect to his anger. The anger of God is a biblical category. Any theologian who tells you it's not, turn him off. Shut it off. Hit mute. Hit pause. Shut your computer. Turn your phone off. Any so-called theologian, Bible commentator, respected leader who says that, that anger and God don't go together is a liar. God is angry with Moses. That's what the Word of God says. We learn two things about this anger. First, he is slow to anger. So we got to get that clearly in view. Exodus 34, later in Exodus uh, chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, God will declare his name in this way to Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is slow to anger. God doesn't have a temper. God doesn't just lose it. We see, uh, we see human anger expressed in that way. It's capricious. It's mood-related, right? And, and, and it's just losing of temper. That, that has nothing to do with God. And perhaps that's the reason many get uncomfortable when talking about God's anger. That doesn't mean we should throw out the category. It just means that we shouldn't translate human anger to divine anger. Those two things aren't the same. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, we're told clearly in Scripture. So we see God's slowness to be angry with Moses. You could have argued God could have gotten Mo, uh, angry with Moses a lot earlier than this. But second, yes, God is slow to anger, but secondly, sin makes God angry. Period. Sin makes God angry. Not a bursting, uncontrolled temper, but his holy wrath against sin. Let me tell you this. If God had not already set in motion for Christ to come, when Adam and Eve sinned, they would have been obliterated. Obliterated! Sin makes God angry. Exodus 34, 7, it goes on, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So let me say this to everyone here this morning. Know this, apart from Christ, God's anger, his wrath stands over you. 
It's not just Oprah Winfrey and others like that who think that God is just quite fine and happy with them. God is angry with sinners who are outside of Christ. Only in Christ is God's wrath absorbed. Only in Christ is God's anger absorbed. Do not be self-deceived. Make no mistake. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ Jesus, you don't have his blood over you. You don't have his spirit in you. God's disposition towards you is wrath. And Jesus says it clearly. He who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. It's like question 18 in the New City Catechism. God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. All those judgment scenes that you get in the Old Testament, people getting swallowed by the earth, stoned, and then a, a heap on top of them. Aaron's sons get basically obliterated right in front of the, as they're offering these the, the strange fire at the tabernacle. All these scenes are meant to point to the reality of hell. They're meant to point to the reality of God's judgment. They're meant to remind us that as we're moving along and starting to think that God does not hate sin, that he doesn't have anger towards sin, that he's not wrathful towards sin, they're meant to remind us and bring us back into reality. It's a reality check. God will judge this world. And that is why Christ is so precious to us. Because he saves us from the wrath to come. But even in his anger, we see God's mercy here. He is going to send Moses with his Hebrew brother Aaron, the Levite living back in Egypt. And God has already sent Aaron to come to Moses. God, God has already, he already has Aaron on his way to see Moses. God will be with both of them. With both of their mouths, the Lord recognizes that Aaron can speak well, and he will send him to help Moses out. God will send them and empower them to do his work. Moses will not have to do this alone. Moses, with staff in hand, will be like God, and Aaron will be like his prophet. And as a prophet functions as a mouthpiece for God, so too will Aaron be Moses' mouthpiece as he speaks to the people. As we finish up this morning, I want you to consider how this ends. And I alluded to this earlier. There's no more discussion after this. There's no more discussion after Moses comes face to face with God's anger. There's no more discussion after the Lord says to him, in his unwillingness, you must go. Moses must go, and he must trust the Lord no more excuses, no more objections, just go and I will be with you. And that is what the Lord is saying to the, us this morning. As we, as we encounter this story, that is what God is saying to his people today. Go, serve me. Use the gifts I've given you. Rely on me when you think your abilities are lacking. Rely on me when you think you don't have any gifts. Keep the spotlight where it belongs. Go, and I will be with you. That's the Lord's message to us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just being so clear and honest with us about who you are, God. You, 
You show us so clearly the kind of God that you are. And Lord, you make, you make theology so easy because you're so plain in showing us your character, your attributes. You show us here your slowness to anger and, and yet that you are angry with sin. You show us here your patience and your grace, but also your unyielding firmness and resolve for your own glory and your own purposes. Father, you are beyond our understanding. Your glory is what we will enjoy for eternity. We praise you, God, that we have this treasure to enjoy forever. Would you be with us now as we partake of this treasure of the Lord's Supper, as we are reminded of what Christ did for us, as we commune with you and one another, would our hearts be lifted up today? Would the spotlight move from us to you? In Jesus' name. Amen.